I'm Dave Mitchell, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. And uh, excited to be able to share with you on a continuing series on the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been looking at, we looked at Andrew, and uh, he was one of those guys that was sort of trying to figure things out. Today we come to an individual that is known as Th- Thomas the Doubting Thomas. And uh, as you will see on the screen, Thomas, can any doubts create something that is good? And so I want you to be able to think about this for just a minute. There on the outline that you have is a uh, question on the back side. And the question on the back side that I put on there is this. What doubts do you have about God, His plans or challenges or slash issues that you face in life? What are those challenges that you're struggling with? For example, uh, what doubts do you have about God, that God really knows what He's doing with your life? There may be some struggles, there may be issues, there may be problems in the classroom, there may be problems with my health, problems about finding a job, what school to go to. seems like things aren't really coming together in those areas, and you begin to question, does God really know what He's doing? And it can create doubts. There may be doubts about relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, should I marry him, should I marry her, did I marry her the right way, did I marry him, is he the right one? There may be questions that come up about our children and where they're walking. Are they walking with the Lord? They're not walking with the Lord. Doubts can come into our hearts in a lot of areas. I'd like for you just to think for just a moment. So I'm going to stop talking here for just a moment. Don't clap. But I'm going to just stop talking for just a moment and let you think, what are some areas of doubt that you have? Maybe in some of those things I just touched on, maybe some other area, and you've really been struggling. God, what are you up to? Can I trust you with that? What are those areas of doubt that you may have? Just think about it, or perhaps even better yet, write it down on the back side of that outline there. Because we want to take those doubts now. As you had a little chance, maybe some of those immediately came to your mind, maybe take a little bit longer, but just as you think about this as we go through this, I want to touch on some of the areas that I think are important about doubts, and we're going to get to Thomas. Just a little bit, a bit of a background. There are three areas in which Satan loves to create doubts. So I'm going to go through this very quickly. But Satan loves to create doubts in my mind, first of all, in the Garden of Eden when he was speaking to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He was questioning Eve about whether God knew what he was doing as he came to her and gave her this command about eating of the tree. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden. The first question that has ever been posed in the Garden of Eden, the first question that was ever given to a woman in the Garden of Eden, to Eve, was this question, Indeed, has God said. Satan loves to create doubts whether I can trust his word. Satan loves to create doubts whether I should spend time studying his word. Satan loves to create doubts in churches, in pastors' hearts, as to whether they should preach God's word. Satan loves to create doubts whether it's really worth the time and the effort, and really, is it something that we should be pursuing? So, if there are questions that you have or doubts about whether I can trust God's word, there may be a reason for that. Secondly, doubts that certain sins are really wrong. In Genesis 3, 4, God had given to her a command about not eating a certain tree, and it says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden of... God has said, you should not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, 
you surely won't die. <clears throat> One of the things that Satan loves to do is to create doubts as to whether certain behaviors are still wrong. That's rampant today. <clears throat> the kind of morality and immorality that is uh, floating around in a variety of ways is something that a lot of us who have lived long enough have seen it evolve and develop, and there are things that once were called sins that are no longer sins. Satan loves to create in our mindset that certain things are really okay. <clears throat> and the problem is not with whether it's okay or not. The problem is with the people that keep on hanging on to the fact that it's not okay. Satan loves to create in my mind that I can get away with doing wrong and never have to pay a price. That I can commit certain sins <clears throat> and never have to worry about consequences. Satan loves to create this deception of the heart that it's your problem, not mine, that you don't accept my behavior. That's right from where the Garden of Eden started. And then the third area of doubt that Satan loves to create is this. Doubts that God's plans for me are good. That God really knows what He's doing. Eve eats from the tree. She completely disobeys a clear command from God, thinking that I can eat this and I won't die. It's, it's no longer wrong. Satan's convinced me of that. So she does it. And woman, woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a light to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. See, in Eve's mind, by my disobeying God, because I won't die, no consequence, the mindset is, I therefore think that my idea about how I should live my life, what my plans are, what my values are, I think that should be preeminent over what God says because I'm not sure God has my best interests at heart. Because if I do it God's way, I'm not sure my life is going to be as fulfilled or, here's the word, as happy as it would be. And so what she discovered that it was good, it was good. And it was a delight to her eyes. It felt good. It felt right. There was something so right on about doing this thing that God had clearly said it was wrong. So what Satan loves to do, and this is the battle that we face with folks today. We face it in the church. We face it, I face it with other pastors. That we create this mindset that, that I am so self-deceived that I doubt the trustfulness of God's Word. I doubt that certain sins are still wrong, and so I doubt that God has good plans for me. And that if I choose my own way, I will find that life is good, even delightful, even desirable. So Satan creates this platform of thought where my behavior has complete doubts about God. And he says, that's a good thing. And so we walk into this world of deception we don't even know. It's so deceptive that we don't know we're deceived. That's the danger of doubts. And what happens is that I continue to live in those areas of doubts and disobedience, then Satan has his upper hand. Because here are three dangers that come when those doubts are not appropriately resolved. Danger number one that I believe that it comes out of Matthew 23 that we're not going to explore, that some will judge people with doubts. We begin to have this mindset like the Pharisees. The Pharisees in Matthew 23, Jesus rakes them over the coals. And in that passage that is a 
amazing passage. You think that Jesus is just this namby-pamby lightweight. He really takes on these Pharisees. And he, he cuts them down. But the Pharisees had this mindset. We know better than you what's right. We've created a whole lot of laws that you need to follow. And we will not listen to any dissent. So they had this authoritarian style of religious leadership. And that any Jew that would dare question what we said our laws and our authority over you will take you to task. In fact, they were so committed to it, they hung Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus wouldn't fall in line. And so this kind of judgmental attitude when I express doubts is a danger. And it's destructive. Secondly, the danger of doubts is that my heart of doubt becomes hardened to the truth. There's a very haunting passage, to me at least. It's found in Romans chapter 1, in verses 21 through 24. We went through the book of Romans here recently, but in Romans chapter 1, this is a critical passage to balance out a measure of good grace that we all believe in here. God says in Romans 1.21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They knew God, didn't obey God. Therefore, they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. This heart of knowing God becomes foolish and darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and image in the form of a corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurities so that their bodies would not be dishonored among them. There's something about walking in a healthy fear of God, but not in the sense that God is this ogre that wants to judge me. That this passage moves me away from, I can do whatever I want and just show love and grace no matter what, all the way the pendulum begins to swing in my own heart. When I read a passage like this, it says, wait a second. There comes a point where God says, I give you over to the lusts of impurity. And... I don't want anyone to walk close to that, but I pray constantly for folks that I fear that God has already swung that pendulum to give over. And the danger of doubts, and this is just to kind of help us that we need to work hard in this area, is that when those doubts persist, even though I know God, I refuse to give thanks to God. I refuse to respond to God. And when I refuse to respond to God, God gives them over to a way of life and says, okay, live in it. Bear the pain of it. Jeremiah chapter 11. God is speaking to the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And after repeatedly for hundreds and hundreds of years, ever since King Saul, hundreds of years, God rebuked them, obey me, respond to me, love me, let's gather together, let's worship. And they refused. And it's in Jeremiah 11, about 600 B.C., Jeremiah writes this. And i just just reading this. This just really haunts my heart. That God says to Jeremiah, don't pray for Judah anymore. Don't even pray for him. Because I won't respond. I'm done. 
Now that, that doesn't happen very often, that maybe just that one time in the history, and so we don't want to say that it's something that God will ever do again, but it does show me that God has a point where he says and he asks and he pleads, and that there is a danger of doubts that it allows me to become fixed in a hardened, stubborn heart. And we don't want that to happen. So that's why when we get to this next section, it's important that we understand what God says from Thomas's life. Because the third danger of doubts is that I am susceptible to false teaching. I am susceptible and pray to those that come alongside. I doubt that God's word is true. I doubt that I can trust God's plan for my life. And so Eve becomes very susceptible to the false teaching of Satan. Now, I'm not saying every prophet that preaches false things as Satan, but I'm saying that he loves to put words in people's mouths who mislead people into a false belief system. And doubts can allow that susceptibility. Now, here is the good part. Doubts can be good. And this is the thing that I want to drive home. Doubts can be good because we want to help those who are maybe borderline going to be given over to and, and a stubborn, hardened, hearted uh, condition. Doubts can be good when we look at the life of, Sa- of Thomas. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, one of the great passages that God has given to us. We love to read this passage. It's uplifting. It's encouraging. It's the kind of word that God wants for all of us. We love to hear it at funerals especially. But in John chapter 14, the context is that Jesus is in the upper room. He's gathered with his disciples. It's days away from his own crucifixion. So he wants to bring hope to his disciples. And he says this in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now, Jesus is giving this wonderful, uplifting message. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. I'm building a house. I'm creating a mansion. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back. I promise I'll come back. He's been with his disciples for three years. He's been pouring his life into his disciples. They have been living with him day and night. They have spent more time with him than anybody else has ever in the face of the earth until those who people, until we all get to heaven. They've been there. He's taught them. He's poured his heart out to them. They've seen 35 miracles that Jesus has done. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him heal the lepers. It's just staggering of the power of Christ. They've been with him. And he says, now I've gone to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you. You know the way where I'm going. And he just pours his heart out to these men knowing he's dying in days. And after he gives us very uplifting, moving, motivating, powerful message, a hand shoots up from the disciples. Uh, Rabbi? Question. It's Thomas. Now, I don't mean to put a damper on this whole big party we're doing here at the upper room. But I don't get it. So Thomas asks this question in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not where you're, know where you are going. How do we know the way? How do we know the way? I don't know the way. I don't know where you're going. I don't get this whole thing. I've lived with you for three years, Jesus. You're the greatest teacher that ever has lived on the face of the earth. You've done some of the greatest miracles that has ever been done on the face of the earth. Jesus, uh, uh, it's been great. It's been a great ride, but I don't get it. I don't understand. It's so aggravating. 
If you're a parent, you've been pouring into your children, you want them to understand, and after all that you've said and done, they still say, I I don't understand, I don't get it. It's so frustrating. Jesus hears this question. Does Jesus rebuke Thomas by asking this question? I don't get it. I don't know the way. Where are you going? I don't, it doesn't even fit in my mind. I don't get it. Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus does not blame him. Jesus does not shame him. Jesus does not put him down for having a question of maybe dissent and misunderstanding. Jesus simply responds with one of the great verses that is in the entire Bible. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. What I love about this episode of Thomas's life is that it tells me that God loves our questions. And Jesus is just waiting to respond. Even if it looks like, boy, after three years, don't you get it yet? Well, Thomas did not. And it tells me that when we engage, those of us who are parents, for example, if you've got children, they're reaching the age of asking some tough questions. The worst thing we do is to blame and to shame to somehow cause them to not want to have a word of dissent. Um, I was just reading this last week, and I don't really follow actors and actresses that much, but actress Susan Sarandon. I was intrigued by an interview she gave just recently this year. She's a liberal, socially-oriented person. She's into spiritual New Age meditation. But she was asked, where did you... How did you land there? And this is what Susan Sarandon said, of all people. She said, I grew up in an organized church religion. And I still remember when I was in elementary Sunday school, when I was going to Sunday school, I kept on asking questions about why, why. And then she said, I was told, you can't be here because you ask, quote-unquote, inappropriate questions. And she said, after that, I decided, okay, I don't need to be part of that. Now, maybe she had other issues, but that's what she said. And it tells me that when people ask even what we think are inappropriate questions, they are opportunities because doubt causes me to ask relevant questions. I appreciate Thomas because at least he raised his hand. The other apostles often did not raise their hands. For example, in Mark 9, it says, For Jesus was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. He's talking about Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is talking about Jesus' crucifixion and death and resurrection. And then it goes on to say in Mark, But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. We don't want, and not that Jesus created this environment, but we don't want to have a setting where people are afraid to ask inappropriate questions because they don't understand and there are doubts in their heart. Doubts are good when they force relevant questions to be asked about issues we don't understand. We invite that from people's lives. And those of us who teach and those of us who are parents and those of us who have friends that we care about in this arena... We need to provide a situation where we are engaging on the inappropriate questions that people ask because they open the hearts to what God wants to do. Second reason that doubts can be good is this, 
doubts that are freely expressed in a community of love and grace. It's in John chapter 20 that we find the bulk of the life of Thomas. And in John chapter 20, verse 19, if you want to read along, it's in John 20, 19 in your Bibles or the Bibles in the chair rack. It says this, after the resurrection of Jesus, he's died, he's been buried, he's come back to life. He is beginning to reveal himself to people. He's already revealed himself to Mary in the garden and then in the disciples in the, probably the upper room where they were just meeting in John 14. It says this, So when it was evening on that first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, when the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. He suddenly appears miraculously as the resurrected Jesus. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his feet and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sin have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So go out, preach the word, get repentance. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, Didymus means twins, We think that he might have had a twin brother or sister. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know why he wasn't there, but the other eleven probably were there, but he was not. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, In essence, I will not believe until I see it myself. What I love about this scenario, what I learned from Thomas this week, is that Thomas is the guy that, yeah, John 14, Jesus, uh, sorry, just don't get it. But then when he comes to the upper room as they gather after the resurrection, Thomas comes into the room with that analytical mind of his. He says, man, unless I see his his hands, unless I touch his side, I'm not going to believe either. But where he is and where he says it is what is significant to me in this passage. He says it in this community of followers of Jesus who are equally convinced that Jesus is alive because they saw it and they want to pass it on to Thomas, but Thomas isn't on board yet. That's not where he's at yet. But I love about these disciples was they were pleading with him we want you to get what we get but we know that you don't get it yet doubts are best and are good when communicated in a community of love and grace where the engagement is not one of shame and blame but it is one of an opportunity to discover more truth and that's what's happening here And here's the concern that I have for us as a church let me just go back to where Matt Davis was talking for just a moment and the Generation Project, to have a place for students to gather. This is last week. I did a little extra homework and study, and I found this place called the Fuller Youth Institute. The Fuller Youth Institute, led by a couple of individuals who did a study. I wrote about this in an email this last week, in case you didn't read that. The email or the study is this. They surveyed high school students across America. And of that study, they found that 70% of high school students have doubts of significance about God. They doubt whether God exists. They doubt whether they can live the good Christian life. They doubt whether Jesus is the only way to heaven. Those are significant doubts. And what they discovered is that of that 70% with those heavyweight doubts... Only 1% or 2% ever have an opportunity where they can go and dialogue about those doubts. And so therefore they sort of stuff them inside and continue to live with those doubts, never 
essentially getting them resolved at least in high school. But they found this, that seniors in high school who had the opportunity to dialogue and discuss the doubts, does God exist? Can I ever be good enough? Is Jesus the only way? Seniors in high school who were able to articulate and express the kinds of doubts that they had, they found that when they moved on to college, their faith was much more mature than those high school students who never had a place where that was talked about. And they just sort of stuffed the doubts inside. The number one solution that these two Fuller Seminary professors came up with is this, that we need to create what they called a safe place where doubts can be wrestled with. We need to create a place. And for some of us, we grew up, I grew up in a Christian home. I could have asked my dad who was a pastor, seminary trained. But frankly, a lot of the doubts that I had, I was afraid to ask my dad because I didn't know how he would respond. He was always a good dad, a great dad. I love my dad. But sometimes I found it easier to ask the youth pastor of our church than my own dad. But some of us have homes where that can occur. But not every student has a home in which that can occur. And not every student in that home wants to ask those questions there because there's an emotional engagement that sometimes is awkward and hard. And the measure of grace and acceptance is not always as easy between a parent and a child than a student leader or a pastor who is not their parent. And for those who have no parents at home that walk with Jesus and know Jesus and have no home setting where that can occur, we need to provide a place that is safe, even sacred as we heard, where students can come and gather. And we can take that generation with whatever doubts they may have, that 70%, and help them process it in a way that's healthy, that moves them forward in a way that brings them to the point of faith and belief. Doubts are natural in a life of faith. Not until we see Jesus where our faith go away and our doubts erase. But as we have faith, we always have doubts. But we want to take those doubts and work them through. And the key is in a community of grace where there is safe, even sacred, where dialogue is appropriate, and we help them work it through. Because the evidence of truth is on our side. We just want to help them get there, as Thomas did. As you notice in the third thing, when doubts are good, doubts are good because doubts move God to reveal the full truth. So I believe in Jesus. That's what I love about Thomas. He expresses his doubt. And then what happens in this passage in verse 26 is that eight days later, Thomas was not there in the first visitation by Jesus and the other maybe 11 disciples, or at least 10, because Judas wouldn't have been there. But eight days later, in verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So he miraculously appears in that beautifully resurrected body. Then he said to Thomas, he goes right to Thomas, because he knows what Thomas has said. Jesus knows everything. And he says, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach you with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. I don't even know that Thomas ever even touched his side or his hands. But Jesus, in his compassion, in his kindness, he says, let me appear to you, Thomas. Now, Thomas, we've got something to talk about, don't we? We've got some issues that we want to work through. I don't know whether the other 12 or the other 10 would have believed if hadn't seen it either. I don't know. 
But Thomas, at least he was bold enough to, again, hey, I'm going to raise my hand on that one because I don't get it. I don't believe it until I see it. I need evidence. So Jesus says, you want evidence? Here I am. Here's my hand, my side. Touch it. Jesus is not threatened by doubts. Jesus is not fearful of our doubts. Jesus does not run the other way when we express doubts. Jesus is not troubled to the point that he says, I don't want you to be part of my family because you have doubts. Jesus says, I want to move toward those who have doubts. I want to engage with those who have doubts. I want to appear to you so that you can see who I am. God does not want to conceal who he is. He wants to reveal who he is. And doubts open my heart to relevant questions, a community of grace, and allows God then to move towards me. I want to be there where Jesus begins to move towards me, and whatever the doubts are, he wants to engage on it. Let me give you a current illustration of how God is doing that. Just this last week, three days ago, I got the email from uh, one of our missionaries, David and Heidi Coombs, and their son Steve was serving over in Turkey. I think Steve, I was told, might be here. Steve here? Are you here? There you are, Steve. I'm going to tell your story. I may not get it exactly right, but... uh, you can straighten me out later. Everybody else does it too. Um, Steve is over in Turkey. And so I'm just quoting from his letter roughly. Serving over there with a friend and they have an apartment. And they would go to this location where some of the refugees are coming from Iraq. There is a group of people of Kurdish ethno-religious group called the Yazidis. And we heard about some of them They were the ones, if you read the newspaper, that were on this mountain that were going to be overrun by ISIS in Iraq. And then we as Americans went over there and we, American troops, went over there and bombed to keep these people relatively safe. Well, some of these Yazidis had already escaped into Turkey because they saw what would happen because ISIS took over Mosul and so therefore they had no place to go and so they sought refuge in Turkey. And so Steve was over there, and uh, they gathered together. And one of the things that they'd had a weekly trip where they would go and feed the homeless people. As they were feeding the homeless people, there was one family that came up, and there are fictitious names, but the family, something by the name of Takel, came to them. Ten members of this family looking for food. And so they fed them, and then they realized they had no place to go. So Steve invited them to his apartment, two-bedroom apartment. They found an extra bed, threw it in there. So there's 10 of them, plus Steve and his friend, and they hang out. turns out that this Yazidi family of 10 were musicians in Iraq professionally. So they would sing together, they would dance together, and the Yazidis would uh, create tea and they'd have a party every night. It was a great celebration. So they had a great time together. And I remember that Steve said I, he remembered that he had a DVD of the Jesus Project, the Jesus film. And it just so happened that that particular DVD of the Jesus Project was in the Kurdish language. So he was able to show it to these Kurds who had come across the border for refuge. And they heard the story of Jesus. One of these Kurds said, hey, could I go to church with you? Well, absolutely. So they went to church. He comes back and he says, man, this is exciting. You should hear the music of this church. And being musicians, they all got excited as well. And one of the guys said, well, what are the rules? Can anybody go to church? What are the rules when I go to church? Is it okay for me? I mean, it's a foreign concept, obviously, to a lot of Iraqis and Kurds. So they began to engage on the issue of church and Jesus. 
And they began to pray because one of the sisters or two sisters were still on that Mount Sinjar. And they were praying for their safety and their deliverance. So they prayed that God would protect that sister. And here is what then Steve wrote. After a week, we heard news of a miracle. All of the sisters were out of immediate danger. Thousands of Yazidi women have been sold into slavery by ISIS. Yet by God's grace, their kidnapped sister was released. Many of those trapped on Mount Sinjar died of thirst. But both of their sisters escaped into Kurdistan. And I'd never seen the power of prayer so vividly. Shortly after that, Ali, one of the members of this 10-member family that were living with him in the apartment, told me he needed to talk to me about something important. He told me this story. Ali said, the other night I felt really sick. I tried everything to feel better, but nothing worked. I finally went out into the balcony and told Jesus, I want to meet him. Immediately I felt a presence surround me and heard a voice saying, drink water. So I did just that. And right away I felt completely better. I told my wife and that she said that she wanted to meet Jesus too. And she had a pain in her side all day, but when we prayed about it, the pain stopped. And Steve picks up the story. He says, we told them the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and how Jesus described himself as the living water. That night, Exali had a dream where Jesus came and talked with her at length. And she said, I believe in Jesus because I know he loves me. She said, after all of this, I asked, Ali asked us to teach him how to read his Kurdish Bible. And he's been reading it ever since. Steve writes, I've heard stories of Jesus revealing himself through dreams and visions in different parts of the world. But this time it was happening right in front of me. The story's not over. We do not know where the future holds for the Takalis, but Dezan told me that they feel like birds without a nest. God continues to work in their hearts, and he will bring about his will and timing. I never imagined I could do anything to stop the monstrosities of ISIS in Iraq. I cannot run across the border and end this war. But I was able to entangle my life with one beautiful family in doing so that became like a family to me. And Exdali's last words to me before saying goodbye... She said, Aiden, you are my brother. And I responded, you are my sister. God moves towards people with doubts who come to him seeking the truth. Miracles are happening in other countries like this. And I don't ever doubt for a moment that that miracle can't happen for you and for the people you love whose hearts are filled with doubts. Because God, like Jesus, moves towards those who begin to seek the truth. Proverbs, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. So finally, Thomas comes to him. When doubts are expressed, I'm willing to learn the full truth. I don't understand it. I can't make a promise to you, Jesus, but I'm willing to learn. When he learns, he sees the evidence, he believes. And it says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, because you have seen me, Jesus said, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. What God wants is that heart of faith. As long as we have faith, we will have doubts. Because they run hand in hand. Only when our faith disappears by seeing Jesus will our doubts disappear. But in the journey, we take those doubts 
We ask the questions. We engage with the community of grace. We wait for Jesus to move towards us. And then we embrace what He gives to us, my Lord and my God. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to have a little bit of a quiet music. And then when the music comes up to worship, we can come to the tables, the cup and the bread, symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus, the offering bucket for our contributions of gifts. But before we do those things, I want you to sit for just a moment when the music is a little quieter after I pray and say, God, these are doubts that I have. But for this friend, for my heart, for these issues, these are doubts that I'm still struggling with. I'm a lot like Thomas. I want to raise my hand. I don't get it. Take those doubts and say, God, would you bring the good to me that you brought to Thomas? Would you move towards me that my heart would be blessed by believing in you and wrestling with these things? Would you bring that good to my life? Invite him to do that. As he did it with Thomas, he'll do it with you. As they did it to this Yassidi family, he can do it for you. Let's pray. Father God, help us in our journey because there are often days when I don't get it. I don't know why you do what you do. I don't know why certain people behave as they do. I don't know why tragedies come, suffering comes, pain comes, rebellion comes, sinfulness comes. I don't know why people indulge and why do I indulge in those things. Why do we do those things? I don't understand it all, Father. But Father, I want to be one who believes. So I want you to take whatever doubt I may have from moment to moment and bring about your good. Reveal yourself more. Strengthen me in my belief. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. Let us be those people together as we reflect on this for just a moment. In Jesus' name, amen.